You guys doing all right? Good. All right. Well, to get where we're going today, I'm going to start by telling you a story. Um, anybody ever lost a dog? Yeah. It's a sad day, isn't it? Um, lost a dog. I, I'm going to tell you how I lost a dog because it's not the way you usually lose a dog. Um, when I was, oh, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 years old, um, we were going to this church and uh, some folks left a little yellow lab puppy on the steps, like the steps of the church, in a basket. And um, so some of our family friends, they, they rescued and adopted this little puppy and took it home and named it Moses because it was left in a basket of reeds. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, this puppy was crazy wild for them, and so they thought we needed it instead. So somehow, I think we had more land, you know, so somehow our family ended up with this puppy Mosey, or Moses, that we found out later was a female, and so we named her Mosey. Um, so Mosey was our puppy, and uh, she was a good dog, good loving dog, part of the family, and we had this big, you know, plot of land, not that big, but, you know, a big yard, no fence. And uh, we were out here on the Redlands, big yard, no fence, and just a great spot to run around, lots of open space all around. And um, as this dog grew and got older, um, it started disappearing for days at a time, you know, for just a while here, and then a couple days at a time, it would disappear and then come back. And we started noticing that Mosey wasn't eating her dried dog food anymore, but she still kept gaining weight. And so we're like, this is strange. I wonder what's going on here, you know? Um, and so Mosey, eventually, um, my dad started like trying to figure out what was going on. And, and one day he's teaching at the college or the current university and uh, he's teaching and he finds out one of his co-professors, they start comparing notes and um, the co-professor, this other doctor, had been feeding the dog Alpo and Bologna, like across this big field, across from our house. <laughs> And so this just kept going on. And one day the dog came back to visit us and she had his tags on her. <laughs> and that's how I lost my dog. <laughs> the point is, if you have a dog, fences are good, right? If you want the dog to be part of your family, if you want the dog to stay in your yard, if you want the dog to be protected, if you want the dog to kind of, you know, not run off and adopt a new family, fences are good, aren't they? And we didn't have a fence, and we lost our dog. So anyway, that'll tie into the message a little later. Uh, but let me, just, let me just go on by saying this. Today we are starting a new series called Decalogue. And the Decalogue, how many know what the Decalogue is? What's the more famous name for the Decalogue? Thank you, the Ten Commandments. Decalogue means ten words in Greek. And that's what this section, Jewish people called this the ten words or ten statements that God made. They become known as the Ten Commandments at a later time. And then also uh, when the Jews interpreted the first Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint, um, they called these, this the Decalogue or the Ten Words. And so this series, we are going to really dig into this. And let me just tell you, um, these are really God's top ten rules, his top ten laws, his top ten um, defense that he gives his people, Israel, as part of his family. The fence he gives them, the guidelines and the boundaries he gives them to, to thrive as a society. 
And if you're thinking, wow, a few weeks in the Ten Commandments doesn't sound all that exciting, let me just say, um, I think this may be one of actually the most freeing series for you. You're like, freeing commandments? I don't get it. How's that going to work? Let me just say, especially if you're just connecting to God, church, or, or the Bible for the first time, I think you're going to find some real freedom in here versus the way that you may have grown up thinking. You see, there's a widespread assumption in all world religions, really, I mean, kind of across the board, that in order to find acceptance with God, in order to be okay with God, in order for God to want a relationship with you, you have to first clean up your life. You have to first keep a bunch of rules. You have to conform to a set of, of rules. And somehow, if you do that well, you can perform, perform your way into his good graces and sort of tip the scales in your favor so that he'll want to have a relationship with you or at least He'll be okay with you um, in your life, you know, and, and in the afterlife, right? And where did that idea come from? I think it, some of it started in ancient times when they, they worshipped, you know, forces of nature that they didn't understand. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped, um, you know, in Egypt, the River Nile they worshipped, right? They, they had all these different gods that were false idol gods. They'd build idols, they'd bow down, they'd worship, they'd sacrifice to them, right? And, and in, in ancient times, you know, the gods were disinterested in people at best. Sometimes they were downright hostile towards people in the culture. They were never, certainly never, loving or desiring a relationship with people. If you look at the, the idol gods of ancient times, and in order to get the gods to maybe answer your prayer, do something for you, maybe it was a drought year and, and you wanted some rain so your crops could grow, maybe your child was sick and you wanted your child to, to get better, you would have to sacrifice to these gods. And if you go back and look at ancient history, um, you, you never quite knew where you stood with the gods, and so you'd have to sacrifice all kinds of things. You'd have to bring crops. Even if you're starving, you would have to sacrifice to these gods. And then um, sometimes they would... In ancient cultures, you read these just horrible, um, terrifying practices. They would slash themselves. They would offer countless sacrifices of children on, on the fire to some of these false gods. And so was, there was this great fear and this great feeling of uncertainty when it came to God. And this is the world that the one true God breaks into with his message, that he breaks into to speak to his people. You see, the big idea behind that, and really today, um, when you translate that kind of thinking to today, the idea is somehow, um, somehow if, you, if you just clean up your act, if you just keep a set of rules good enough, you can put God somehow in your debt, you know, by doing better, by, by sacrificing, by trying to be a good person, however you define that, and somehow you can put God in your debt, tip the scales in your favor so that he'll be okay with you. In fact, if you're just, you know, if you're just exploring faith or maybe you have a friend or a coworker that you've talked to and this is really what they say, um, if I asked, hey, assuming there's a heaven after this life, do you think you're going there? You know what most people's automatic response is? Yes, but actually, it's, for a lot of people, it's I hope so. Have you noticed that? It's like, mm, 
And, and what they do is a quick like mental inventory of where they're at in their life right now. You know, I don't know. And it's like, I hope so. I hope so. In fact, for some of you, it's, maybe it's taken you a long time to reconnect with church, or this is the first time you're connecting with, with church, because you, part of your thinking has been, man, before I go back to church, I've got to get some things together. Like, before I can go back to church, I, man, I need to, like, if I had gone back a couple months ago, whoo, I don't know, lightning bolts, ceiling caving in, let me just say I've never seen that in all my years as, as a pastor, Lightning, no, so you're, you're, you're good, okay? But here's the thing. Uh, a lot of times that's actually what people think. Yeah, and I just need to, you know, clean up a little bit and then I can connect. And you know, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, the prevailing thought is really that God's got this bunch of laws and rules and he kind of threw them out here and he's standing back with his arms crossed waiting for you to mess up. I mean, do you want to be really honest? How many of you have ever felt that sometimes? Yeah. The rest of you just aren't being honest right now, right? Like, I'm not raising my hand in church. You might call me up there. I wouldn't do that to you very often. All right. But here's the problem also with the Ten Commandments, especially if you have this line of thinking. God's got ten top ten rules and here's the thing, I bet if we did a little quick test, you might not be able to even name them all off right now. Go. <laughs> In your head, go. Now here's what I bet. Some of you are like, all right, I got to like three or four. Right? Got to three or four. Maybe some of you are like, I got to five or six. Some of you are like, <laughs> all ten. And see, here's what you do. Like, here's what a lot of people do in society when you start thinking about the Ten Commandments, when you start thinking about laws or guidelines or rules that God has set up and comparing your life to where you're at. You're like, hmm, uh, let's see, Ten Commandments. Murder. Good on that one. Never murdered, right? Uh, steal. I haven't done that one in a long time. Maybe there's a couple times. Oh, I guess the time card, unless they're really not, you know. But still, yeah, pretty good on that one, right? Um, never committed adultery. And we start like going through this in our head, right? And then, of course, Jesus comes along about 1,500 years after these were written and goes, uh, actually, um, if, you've, if you've ever gone there in your head and in your heart, you've gone there in God's eyes. Like, uh-oh, that's not good, right? And so there's this idea of real uncertainty of like, man, I hope I'm tipped the scales enough. I, I think I feel like God's just standing back there waiting for me to mess up, waiting for me, you know, with his arms crossed, waiting for me to mess up. Kind of the idea of, you know, is when you die then, you know, it's kind of like we'll get together and talk about it and figure out how you did. This is really, I think, the way a lot of people think in our culture. Now, if you grew up in a church like ours, you probably don't think that way. But let me just say, this, this way of thinking runs counter to the message of the gospel. And what we're going to see is, is that actually it runs counter to the message that's been there all along in Scripture 
of, of the heart of God and who God is. See, here's the thing. You don't ever and we can't ever initiate a relationship with God through being good enough to somehow put God in our debt. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. And here's the really good news is that God's laws, God's rules, the fence, the border, the, the, um, the guidelines he sets up are not a, prere a prerequisite for relationship with him. In fact, they're actually a confirmation of relationship with him. And the cool thing is that what God has looked for all along is people who would respond to him in trust and then out of gratitude, loyally love him. That's what he's been looking for all along. And that's what we're going to see today. And we're going to see throughout this series as it unfolds. And we really dig into some of these guidelines, some of these rules, these top 10, th these boundaries, and see how they're actually designed to bring us great freedom. And they've been designed in nations that have put these into practice. They have resulted in freedom, in freedom. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn on over to Exodus chapter 20. And to remind you where we're at, um, God has rescued his people out of slavery. They have been in slavery for hundreds of years. Just imagine that. Hundreds of years. I mean, generations, you know, great, 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 great grandpa. Now, how many of you remember really anything about even your great, great grandparent? Anybody? I remember um, one of mine... And the only, really the only reason is because my mom still makes the pancakes, Goma's pancakes. And they're like these flat, yummy, crepe kind of pancakes. And so that's really about the only thing I know about Goma, my great-great-grandma. I don't know anything about any of the others for the most part. So I do know a little bit about my great-grandparents. I actually got to meet and know a few of those, right? But think of that generations of just all you know is slavery. You don't have any kind of laws. You don't have any kind of society in, in your nation. I, I mean, basically, all you do is what you're told to do. All you do, it, it, you get up and you do what your masters tell you to do. You, you work yourself, you know, you, you just, it's survival. And then you, you start compounding that out generation after generation after generation. This, God rescues this people group. They have no basis, no foundation for building a society, and that's what he's going to give them. And so he brings them out. He brings them through the desert, through the Red Sea. And a couple weeks ago, Jason taught on, he brings them to Mount Sinai. They finally arrive at Mount Sinai where God is going to meet with his people in a dramatic way. And as they get to the mountain, the presence of God shows up in this powerful way. It's called a theophany. It's the big word. Uh, Clouds and lightning and smoke on top of this mountain. God's presence in this dramatic way. And he speaks to Moses. And he tells the people, consecrate yourselves because God is about ready to come and meet with you. And, and God is going to give you, he's going to formalize a covenant with you. We know it as the Sinai covenant. Of what it means to be his people and how to walk out life as his people and how to structure your society. And so that's where we're at, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus 20, verse 1, here's how it starts. And it says this, and God spoke 
all these words. And Moses is careful to remind us that, hey, this isn't something that I just, you know, um, made up or wrote. This is exactly what God spoke. This is him. This is what he spoke. This is the word of God, the, the, the words of God, the actual words of God as God speaks out these commandments. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And see, this is so profound. Not just like, you know, the great God. I am the great God. No, he makes it personal. I am, I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh, your God. It's personal. I'm your God. I don't know. Maybe the people are, are thinking, um, but we haven't really done anything yet. We haven't really, you know... Remember, they're a slave nation. They don't know what the law of God is. They don't know how to please God. And he says, hey, I'm your God. I'm your God. They're slaves. I mean, all they know is slavery. All they know is this God has come and rescued them and delivered them. And now he says, I am your God. And this is so vital. This is so important. Because before he ever gets to giving them the law, he calls them his. You're mine. Before he ever gets to, hey, here, here, here's the rules. See, see relationship, you, you don't earn a relationship with God. God seeks a relationship with you. That's how this works. So he says, I am the Lord, your God. Your God. I know what you, you don't know what you're supposed to do yet. I know you don't know how to build a society. I know you, you, you really don't know how to do much of anything except, you know, serve others is all you, you've done. You know, indentured servitude. You were slaves. But you're mine. You're my people. I am the Lord, your God. And then he takes them down the path. He wants to remind them of what he's done for them. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is cool. So he says, before I get to the, the big top 10 laws as he initiates a covenant, and this whole chapter 20 is really, um, it actually is in the same format as some ancient uh, historical covenant language like that a king would make with a people. And here's the really, really cool thing about this is in all of ancient history, this is unique because these covenants are always about what, you know, the, how the people would serve the king, but not about what the king would do for them. And this is all about, hey, I want a relationship with you. And here's how I want this to work. And here's how I want you to treat others. That's what we're going to see as we go through this, right? But it's interesting. Why does God start this out by reminding them that he rescued them from slavery instead of, you know, like, I am the great creator of all things, which is true. And he'll remind them of that a little bit later. But he starts out by reminding them, I am your God, and I rescued you, and I delivered you. Why does he do that? I think it's because God's power isn't reassuring if you don't know he's for you. Right? And so he wants to remind them right from the top, I am for you. Before God gives the rules, he reminds them that they're his people, and he reminds them 
what he had done for them. Remember, when you were back in Egypt and all hope was gone, when you were being brutally oppressed, when, when Pharaoh was making you throw the baby boys into the Nile River, you remember, I heard your cries. I determined to come and rescue you. I sent Moses. I spoke to Moses. I sent him to Pharaoh who thought he was God to say, let my people go. And what did Pharaoh say? Who's this God? Who's this Yahweh? I don't know that God. I don't respect that God. He respected him after the next period of time because God systematically judges the false idol gods of Egypt. He, he says, you worship the Nile? Okay, let's turn it to blood. You, you worship flies? <laughs> you got flies everywhere. How do you like those flies now? Frogs, you worship frogs, which they worship frogs as a, as a God. Um, you've got... You've got lots of frogs now. And then they all died and stunk. How do you like that? You worship the sun? How about we just blot out the sun? And God systematically um, judges and puts to shame the gods, the idol gods of Egypt. And finally, after the economy in Egypt was just in shambles, Moses again, after the nine plagues, he comes to Pharaoh and he says, now are you going to let my people go? And again, Pharaoh says, no way. And then that's the last straw. That's the last straw. And I just, I, I want to jump back for, for a minute to Exodus chapter 12 and just remind you, because actually the first time God really speaks a instruction or a command to his whole people isn't at Sinai. Oftentimes we think of this as when God speaks his first command to his people. It's not at Sinai. It's actually back in the land of Egypt. It's in Exodus chapter 12, right before the final devastating plague on Egypt. And God in this moment issues his first command to the nation. And here it is. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. In other words, I want you to rearrange your calendar. I want you to focus on this and remember this moment at the beginning of every year. I want this to be top of mind, you know, primary on your mind. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for the whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Now, if you're the people of Israel at this point, you're thinking, okay, the first command from this God, this powerful God, who's clearly above all, you know, these fake idol gods of Egypt, who's so powerful who showed up, the first thing he's asking us to do is have a barbecue. Yeah, now, can I get an amen from some men in the house? Thank you. I like some barbecue. You're like, we can tell. But this is the first thing. He says, I want you to have a meal. I want you to take a lamb, just enough to feed you know, your family. If it's too much, hey, invite some neighbors over. And you're, you're going 
you're going to do something very unique and something very special, and we're going to commemorate this with a meal. And I want this to be rearranging your calendar because you're going to go on to do this every single year to do part of this, to, to eat this meal together, to remember. He goes on, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And in Jewish culture and tradition, they would actually take the lamb into their house for, for a couple weeks, kind of get attached to the thing. Because this sacrifice was precious. This sacrifice was costly. He says, I want you to take this, this animal and then at twilight, you're going you're to kill this animal. Now, to us, that's strange. To them, it's just part of the culture. I mean, that's how you did a barbecue. Most parts of the world. Many parts of the world still today. I remember being in Fiji, you know, we had like a pig roast. And um, yeah, so it's like, ooh, they don't have meat counters, you know, refrigerated meat sections, all that. They don't have that here. And you're like, we're in Western Colorado. We're hunters. We got it. We got this down. But they're to take this animal and sacrifice it. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood. Now, this is kind of odd. This is, remember, this is the first command as a nation that God is giving to now this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 kids, they move, to, they move to Egypt. Egypt becomes this incubator for a nation because they're shepherds, they're icky, they've got shepherd cooties, and nobody will marry or intermingle with them because the Egyptians are the nation on earth that believes they have a pure bloodline. And God brings them down to one of the places where he can actually build and incubate this unique people, this, this family, this large family, about 70 people into this large nation now of uh, most scholars think a million to two million massive nation that God has created in this time in history. And he tells them, I want you to take some of the blood now from this and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Well, that's, that's really weird. That's really strange. So take, the, take the blood and paint it on the side and the top. Yeah, so you're to go, you know, slaughter the lamb, roast it, and, and then put some of the blood here. And then you're to pass under the blood, through the blood. And this is the thing that will keep you safe from the final plague. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the name Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And see, here's, here's what's so significant and so cool about this. And as God on Mount Sinai reminds Moses, hey, I am the God that brought you out of slavery. I, I think Moses' mind probably drifts back to the Passover and to the plagues and to all this history. It's only been three months, right? But before God ever gets to the law, he says, here's what I want you to do. 
I, I, here's who I want to be to you. I want to be your savior. I want to be your rescuer. And where, where you have the greatest need, I want to be your deliverer. And all I'm asking you to do is trust me. Trust me. And here's how you indicate that trust for me. I know it's a little strange. It's a little bit odd. I just want you to do this one thing as a symbol of your trust in me. I want you to paint this blood on the doorpost and come through it as a symbol. And see, just three months later, standing on Mount Sinai, about ready to receive the law of God, he wants to remind them that before we ever got to the law, he was their rescuer. That, that they're not here so they can find out what, what to do in order to earn God's favor. God's favor is with them already. God initiated their redemption. God saved them. God already initiated a relationship with his people. They would know, hey, we are yours. We are yours. And now he's about ready to give them the law, how to structure their, their society, how to treat each other, how to treat God, how to live in right relationship with God. And in the midst of giving and receiving the Ten Commandments right here, um, there's this incredible message. It's so powerful. It's, it's a message that we learn and it unfolds in the gospel, but it's been there all along in Scripture. And that's that a relationship with God is not predicated on keeping rules. He established the relationship with his people before they even knew what the rules were. Isn't that powerful? It's not because of what they've done or performed. It's simply because they trusted him and they indicated it by obeying this simple command. And he says, now that I've delivered you, you're in, you're my people. Now that, now that I've initiated a relationship with you, now I'm going to unfold this covenant of what it means to walk out that relationship. And that's the message of the Ten Commandments. It's the, whole, it's the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the New Testament that rings true all the way through. And so just imagine that. Imagine what's going through Moses' mind as God speaks these words. And now he's going to give the very first commandment. The very first commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, back to chapter 20, verse 3. And so here you go. I'm the God who rescued you, delivered you. I brought you out of slavery. Remember that I'm your God. We have a relationship. And now here's my first instruction. Here's the first thou shalt. Anybody remember the Ten Commandments in the old thou shalt, right? Thou shalt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Or you shall have no other gods beside me. I want to be your one and only. Here's how you respond. You trusted me. You indicated that. I in, I've initiated a relationship with you. I, I've already become your savior, your rescuer, your redeemer, and here's how you respond to that. I want you to be loyal to me. In fact, later we'll, we'll find it out in Deuteronomy. I want you to love me with all your heart, with all your soul. I, I want your believing loyalty, not as a here, I want your believing loyalty as an expression of gratitude 
in response for how, you've re- how I've rescued you. As an expression of gratitude for the trust you have in me. I want your loyalty. I want your loving loyalty. I want to be your God. No others. You shall have no other gods before me. And here's the thing I want you to remember today. That it's always been about responding to God with trust and loyal love. That's the message all along. It's always been about responding to God with trust in him that's then expressed out of gratitude and loyal love for him. That's our call. Trust him. Trust him. Trust that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. And then walk out our lives in in a loyal love towards him. That's an expression of gratitude. You know, family comes first. He invites us into his family first. You get that, right? He initiates a relationship with us. And here's the thing. When when he gives you family rules now, which he's about ready to do for his family, it's because he's already initiated a relationship with them. He's already invited them into the family. They're in, right? I go back to my silly illustration that I started with. I lost my dog because I did not create a boundary, right? So my dog wandered off. If you love your, your dog, um, you, build your, you put your dog in a fence, right? So that it doesn't wander into the street. I'm just guessing also you don't put your neighbor's dog in your fence, do you? You put your dog in the fence, right? Why? Because it's yours. When did it become yours? Well, probably when you purchased it, right? Or when you saw that TV commercial of that, oh, so cute little puppy. And you went down to the shelter, and your kids tried to convince you to bring home a cat too. And you did the only wise and loving thing and said, no way. (laughs) Just kidding. But you brought that dog, you rescued it, right? From the pound. That thing, its life was in jeopardy. You rescued that puppy and you brought it home and then you put that dog in that fence yard where it could run and jump and catch frisbees because, you, because it was yours, right? And see, this is, this is the message. Is God, family comes first. He invites you into relationship first. And, and the, laws he, the laws he gives aren't some sort of like hoops you have to jump through all these in order for him to love you and in order for him to initiate a relationship. No, he's inviting you in. And living in line with, with the way that, that, you know, living in line with his laws that he gives and his guidelines and, and moral guidelines, which we have lots of as well in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. It's done a, in an expression of gratitude for what he's done for us. And we need to change our way of thinking when it comes to God's instructions because we have a natural tendency to think of laws and rules and guidelines as bad, right? So many times when actually the, the, the instructions God gives us are because he's for us. 
And these 10 commandments and the law that will follow as he structures a society, there's going to be 613. And these 10 are really going to be kind of the, the chapter headings, the, uh, you know, the title, the, the main headings for the rest of these that are going to come. And this is how you relate to God, how you relate to each other, and how you structure a society so that it will thrive and flourish. And you remember a couple weeks ago, He's chosen them to be a nation of priests. In other words, representatives of God's heart to the nations. That's, that's their job as a nation. That's their commission. And because of that, he's going to have them live differently. And he's, he wants this nation to thrive. And when they really follow the law, man, this nation thrives like none other. Because he wants it to be a light and so attractive to all the other nations that serve these false idol gods that command them to do detestable things like sacrifice their children on the altars. And he wants to show the true God is nothing like that. And he invites right from the very beginning. You know, a bunch of Egyptians leave Egypt because they believe in the one true God. And they're included in the family of God. You get that? All throughout, you have Gentiles included. In fact, when he shows up to Abraham, he tells him what? I, through you, I want all the nations of the world to be blessed. That's the goal. That's the commission. That's, that's my purpose in, in reaching out to humanity through this people group, right? And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. So he trusted God, didn't he? He trusted that God would do what God said he would do. He followed, he left his land, right? He, he obeyed God. Now here's the thing. All throughout scripture, you see this response that you trust God and then you, you are loving and loyal to him. See, Abraham doesn't get to just go, I trust you, and then not leave his land. Abraham doesn't just get to go, I trust you, but then when God says, okay, there's gonna be a symbol of this covenant, it's going to be a little surgery, 90-year-old dude and all your grown male servants. Not going to be real pleasant. Abraham doesn't just get to go, eh, don't think I'm going to do that. See, he trusts God first and then in gratitude and trust in what God says, he's going to do what God says. Even, even to the point of sacrificing his own son which I think, I'm firmly convinced as I study scripture that God uses this dramatic word picture because in that time, the idol, false idol gods of the nations, actually that wouldn't be a too uncommon thing. And so Abraham must assume, well, I guess this God is like the others. I still trust him. And actually we're told in Hebrews that he believed that God was able to raise that son from the dead. And so he's gonna go through with it. And God stops him at the last minute and says, no, I'm not that kind of God. I'm going to provide the sacrifice. I will provide the lamb. It's powerful. And see, all the way from Abraham, the command has been to trust in God, and then that gratitude and trust is expressed in loving loyalty towards him. This is the picture all throughout Scripture. When Jesus comes and he dies for our sins, we are called to place our faith and trust in him. But then if you go on to go, well, great, that's called grace, right? Paul, the Apostle Paul says, 
Grace, we have this incredible grace. We've been forgiven all of our sins. God initiated a relationship with us, invites us into new life in him. We respond in trust. I trust you. It's this incredible grace we receive. But then you know what? Paul says, so then what? Okay, so then we get to just go sin as much as we want because God's grace is unlimited. What does Paul say? May it never be. Like, how could you even think like that? We respond out of gratitude, out of loving loyalty, out of gratitude for what he's done for us, what he's done for us. See, the rules are not a condition for love. They're a confirmation that he loves us, that he wants us to thrive, that he understands what will bring us joy. And the response that he's always desired from us is that trust and gratitude that results in loving loyalty towards him. Now, 1,400 years or so after that very first Passover, Jesus is in an upper room. I'm going to invite Winston up. I'm going to close in a minute with the song. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples huddled around. And as they've done since they were, you know, their very first memories as little children was doing this, celebrating this meal together. And once in history, they had to slaughter the lamb and paint the the blood on and come under it. And then from then on, they, they just remembered what was done. They come under the blood once, and then from that point, it's remembering, right? And Jesus comes to his people. And he says, uh, he comes to his disciples, and he says, hey, as he breaks the bread and he takes the cup, he says, this thing we've done all our lives, tonight, it means something completely different. And from this point on, it means something completely different. This represents the new covenant, that I am initiating not just with a nation in the world, but with all people, with all people, that you can have a relationship with God, that your sins can be forgiven, that he is inviting you, your heavenly father is inviting you in a relationship with God and Jesus after his death and resurrection and ascension. These early followers, the eyewitnesses of his resurrection, will carry this message all throughout the known world. That's why you and I are here today. This message that your heavenly father loved you enough that he didn't stand back with his arms crossed saying, well, let's see how you do. And if you do good enough, maybe you got a chance. He reached out in love. He said, I want a relationship with you. I want to be your savior. I want to be your rescuer. I want to be your redeemer. Before we ever get to the rules. And yeah, this is going to, necessarily transform your life when you say I trust you and I want to place my trust in you and I am making I am asking you I'm declaring you are the Lord of my life Jesus I'm I'm declaring I'm in I'm in your family in your yard and I understand the guidelines that are given are for for my joy isn't that beautiful Would you stand?
And for those that maybe are tuning in online or those in the room that maybe you've never um, heard it kind of put this way, maybe you've never responded to what God, what Jesus did for you when he died and this opportunity you have to come into relationship with him, here's what he's asking you to do. The same thing that he asked the people to do now 3,500 years ago on that first Passover is trust me, trust me. And then you're going to live out when he rescues you and redeems you and saves you out of gratitude. You're going to live your life out of loving loyalty to him. And so if that's you in the room, I just in a moment, I'm going to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. Now, for all of those in the room that you prayed this prayer years ago, how are you doing on the loving loyalty part? Are there things in your life that you know don't line up with the heart of God. Don't line up for, with the direction the Holy Spirit is leading you. Out of gratitude for what he's done for you, would you say, okay, God, Holy Spirit, I want to cooperate with you. Jesus, I want to serve you and follow you. I'm going to get rid of this thing. I'm going to change this direction. I'm going to obey in this area out of loving loyalty to you. Would you do that? Let's pray. And if you want to express your trust in Jesus, why don't you just repeat a simple prayer like this after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I can't make it to the Father on my own. Thank you for initiating a relationship with me. I trust you. I believe you're the Son of God that you died and rose again. I want to give my life to you. I want you to be my king. Welcome me into your family. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, for all of my other friends, I just pray you would give them just an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the way you have worked in their lives and the way you've rescued them and redeemed them, Lord. Would that just, out of love and gratitude, spur their hearts to move forward in loving loyalty for you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.